Thank you so much. It's a real privilege um, and a joy to be back with you again. I think I was here about a year ago. And um, yeah, so we're here for passages. I love the title that you've chosen. It's a wonderful multi-purpose word. You know, as Bruce already used it, we saw it's probably this most basic meaning. It means a passage of scripture, a chunk of Bible verses. And how can you go wrong when you name a, a sermon series passages, chunks of scripture? So we're going to be looking at a scripture this morning. Passages can also mean transitions. It can be a heading in a newsletter uh, for, you know, comings and goings of job, of uh, things in, in life, and, and even obituaries. And to tell the truth, the last time I was here at Forest Grove was two months ago to honor the passing of a dear leader, friend, Abe Clausen, that many of you will know and remember. That's a different kind of passage. Passages can also refer to descriptions of traveling, a map of one's journeys. A passage is a hallway or a place you walk through, or it can be an epic trek like the Northwest Passage. It's this sense of passage as walking, as journeying, that is going to be our starting point this morning. Because this is also one of the most characteristic activities of Jesus, our Lord. As we read through the Gospels, we see that he walked. He walked through Israel from north to south and back again. And as he walked, as he passed from place to place, he brought hope and healing. And this morning, I want us to see him, to see Jesus in this story, in this passage of Scripture from the Gospels. That we see Jesus in a new light, that we hear the love in his voice as he calls us to follow him on this path. So as Bruce has already mentioned, some of you will know that I've been on a bit of a life journey myself and Darlene, together with Darlene in the last, uh, over the last year. The road has been a challenging one, walking away from Bethany and seeking new direction. Currently, I'm serving with Mennonite Central Committee, Saskatchewan. It's a temporary position. It'll go till December. And after that, I don't know uh, what is next. I don't know if this is a slight detour. I don't know if this is a necessary cul-de-sac or if this is the beginning of a new journey. And there are a number of us that are walking this challenging road away from Bethany. And for those of you that have been praying for us and supporting us, I thank you for that. I thank you. I do have to say that I really am enjoying our work at the MCC office. And you need to know how much you as a congregation are contributing to the work there. We've got Laura Carlson, who is one of our receptionists. We've got Carly Hagee working in community engagement, one of your uh, university students, and she's going to continue. Car I don't think Carly's here this morning. Laura, are you here? Okay, sorry. I, I blew their cover. Um, both of them bring, if you know them, you know that they bring a lot of sunshine wherever they go. They bring a spirit of infectious joy, and that's wonderful. And then there are the, you volunteers that come regularly for quilting, for uh, making carpets, for making things that help people elsewhere. And for your work, I thank you. And MCC is very grateful. The work that I'm doing right now is called restorative justice. And this is a part of MCC's ministry here at home. It's fleshing out biblical models of God's love for all people. 
Restorative justice, as I'm learning these days, tries to approach social ministry with a focus on issues of harm and harm reduction in our community life. Restorative justice cares for the victims. It cares for communities affected by crime. And probably what is hardest, it cares for the offenders. And it's something that is applicable and is necessary here in Saskatoon as it is in Syria or Sudan. I've left a flyer, a, a bundle of flyers at the information center. And I would invite you to pick one up on your way home this morning to see what some of the service opportunities are right here in Saskatoon, ways that you could get involved if you chose to uh, explore a bit more of what it means to live out this calling to love our neighbors in terms of issues of crime and justice in Saskatoon. This morning, we're going to follow the dusty trail of Jesus through Luke chapter 19. And I want us to see Jesus with eyes newly sensitized to some of the dynamics that I'm learning about in the area of restorative justice. And I'm framing my thoughts around a few signposts along the way. Sometimes these signposts are simply single words that will give us reason to pause and ponder. But ultimately, we want to see Jesus in action because that's where God is at work. First signpost is the road to Jericho. It's springtime in Israel, and Jesus has been walking the long road from Galilee towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus chose to take Valley Road for the last part of the journey, that is, the Jordan Valley Road. It's a bit easier, except that it does go by Jericho towards the end, and Jesus usually avoided the cities in his wandering. Jericho is a well-to-do city. It's got a great climate. This is where Herod built his winter palace. Much more comfortable than up in Jerusalem on the high hills or even down by Caesarea on the coast. It's got a mix of cultures. It's not just Jewish. It's an ancient city. It's cosmopolitan and sophisticated and proud. As Jesus comes near the city, as we see at the end of Luke chapter 18, he's accosted by the usual panhandlers. One even calls him Messiah to get his attention. Son of David, have mercy on me. Of course, the panhandler was shushed. Maybe it was one of the disciples. Maybe it was one of the locals who wanted Jesus to have a better impression of the town. But who knows who it was, but somebody shushed the beggar. It didn't work. Son of David, help me. He calls out again. And Jesus listened. He stopped and talked. He asked the man a question and granted his request. And the blind beggar became a blessed believer. He threw away his white cane and started dancing for joy along with the crowds, praising God. Jesus, once again, is on the side of the poor and disadvantaged. The blind and lame, the widows and orphans, the outcasts of society. He came to preach good news to the sorrowful, to proclaim release to the captives. All of this is obvious if we read the Gospel of Luke. And it's pretty thick in the first four chapters in particular. And here again, in Luke chapter 18, we see it on the road to Jericho. God healed the poor blind man who confessed Jesus as anointed king. And then, Jesus keeps walking through Jericho. 
The crowds grow and all kinds of people want to see him, want to see this wonder worker. And there's one guy who's become quite famous or infamous. And his name is Zacchaeus. Now, as we approach this story, and as we read through it, we find that there are really only two things that we know about Zacchaeus. He's rich, and he's short. The word rich gives us the first signpost. Zach was a tax collector. Not just a typical CRA employee. Things were a bit different in Jesus' day. There were Jewish taxes, yes, which you would pay when you went to the temple regularly, like paying an offering um, when you go to worship. But most tax, and the difficult taxes for the Jews, were the Roman taxes. The Romans were colonial imperialists. They acted as if they owned the territory. They came in and imposed their enlightened regime on the locals. And they could demand payment because they had the military might to do so. As a Jew, you could grumble, you could rebel, chances are you'll end up getting crucified, or you could collude, collaborate. And that is what Zacchaeus did. Most Jews would have called him a traitor, a sellout. He was, we could say, an oppressor. It was his job, more or less, to make people poor. The Romans would have given Zacchaeus a contract to raise a certain amount of taxes from the region. It was up to Zac to find that money. And he was free to add as much commission as he could squeeze out of his fellow Jews. You could imagine that it was a well-practiced bully who would do quite well in such a system. So if Zac is described as rich, we might assume that he's a bully. He's professional, even sophisticated, no doubt, but a bully nevertheless. And that kind of person or that kind of oppressive system often generates an interesting response from the people around him. If you pay attention, you will often see that victims of bullying, people who live under a regime of oppression, are often good students of their overlords. In other words, they learn how to work the system, even to survive under pressure, and maybe even how to bully back. I remember hearing a story of my grandmother. She worked as a secretary for the Moscow MCC office in the earliest days in the, uh, of the Russian Revolution. And so to avoid any public scrutiny, of course, she would just slip on a red armband as she would walk across Red Square going to work each morning. She was not a communist. But the simplest way to escape attention is to look like one. Later in Winnipeg, during World War II, when the police would come to visit their home, which they did regularly because my grandparents bought a lot of German-language mail, Grandma would slip over into the other room and put on a record with Rule Britannia playing so that it sounded properly British as the police were there listening. Little tricks for surviving in an unfriendly regime. Let me give an example a little bit closer to home. Duck Lake is home to many of the members of the Beardies First Nation. I've been told by a town official there that when it comes to census time, the native population pretty much disappears, evaporates from Duck Lake. Nobody's at home and they can't be counted. And so Duck Lake's official numbers are deflated 
It affects their municipal budget, what they get from the provincial government. Very clever. Except, wait a minute, aren't, aren't they supposed to be obeying the laws of the land? Laws that used to keep them confined to the reserves? Laws that controlled when and where they could travel? Laws that took away their Indian status if they got a university degree? Laws that until 1960 kept them from voting as Canadians? Laws that took six and seven-year-old children away from their families and put them into a foreign language school far from their parents and their home villages? Laws that still provide substantially less for their schools than the public schools get? For many First Nations, it's still a colonial regime that deserves a bit of creative response rather than passive submission. Okay, back to Jericho. You can decide whether that was a digression or not. Let's just imagine Zacchaeus, that wee little man standing in public trying to look important, wanting to know what all the commotion is about. Along comes a tall young guy. Hey, isn't that Nathaniel's son standing there? And then along come Judah's two tall boys, and they stand right in front of him. And then along comes Jericho's basketball team, and they also just stand right in front of Zacchaeus. Sure, Zacchaeus has power, but now, all of a sudden, he's feeling mighty outnumbered, a little bit shut out, a little bit vulnerable even. It would be a creative response, bullying in its own way, but how could we blame those resentful Jews for taking out a treasonous tax collector like that? Okay, the Bible doesn't say anything like that. That's simply a mind experiment. We don't know if that exactly happened, but we do know that Zach would have been something of a bully because he himself uses a word that indicates that. This is the next signpost. Zach uses a word in verse 8 of Luke 19 that is a clue to the harshness of his tactics, and it contains a strong warning to us. He says... If I have defrauded anybody, if I have cheated anybody, is the NIV translation. And the way that he's saying it, it implies that he most certainly has. The word in the original Greek is a colorful word and a disturbing word. It is the word psychophant. He says, if I have psychophanted anybody, or if I have been a psychophant towards anybody... Now, that's a word that is still used in English, but not much. Only political commentators and Scrabble players, I think, might know this word. What does it mean in English to be a psychophant? It, it's not a crazy elephant, in case you're wondering. Anybody want to make a suggestion? We've got a whole bunch of students here. Psychophant, ever heard this word? Any Scrabble players? What does it mean? Toadying up to somebody, yeah. A yes man. A fawning, flattering follower of a leader. A yes man. Somebody who would do anything to help a leader get ahead with the hopes of a little self-promotion along the way. In school, you might call this person a suck-up. But this is a little bit different from the original Greek meaning. This is one of these great words that has evolved a little bit over the centuries. You might have noticed, first of all, that this word psychophant starts with the same letters as sycamore, the tree, 
they do come from the same Greek word, the Greek word for fig. Sycamore is a fig mulberry tree. And if you can see the picture there, okay, the, the tree in the background is um, the, the sycamore that they show you when you go through Jericho. Okay, so that's the kind of tree it is. Now, sycophant literally comes from a verb that means to show a fig. To show a fig. Now, this, I'm treading very delicately here, this is a euphemism. This is a polite way of saying something very rude. The closest English equivalent to this, I suggest, is to flip the bird. And I hope you know what I'm saying. If you think that flipping the bird is something you do when you're playing badminton, talk to your grandchildren. Let's just say it's extremely rude and it's got strong sexual overtones. It's a bad word. The idea is a bad word. This is a polite way of saying a bad word. And there's a very relevant warning for us here in Zacchaeus' word. One of the most prevalent areas of the misuse of power has to do with our sexuality. When our notions of power are twisted, our notions of sexuality also become twisted. Abuse in the one breeds abuse in the other. Our culture is hypersexualized. We focus on sexy bodies, sexy entertainment, and so on. Everything is geared to try and arouse and attract our attention in that one dimension. And these things unconsciously train our thinking, our talking, and ultimately our living in ungodly and destructive, abusive habits. Wrong approaches to sexuality breed violence. And so this word, this signpost, is a reminder. Let's make sure we have a godly sexuality in all our relationships, in all our speech, in all our entertainment. Let's avoid whatever cheapens sexuality. Treat people as images of God, not as sexualized items on display in the meat market. And men, we are the ones that physically and culturally tend to dominate and domineer. So we have a particular responsibility for disciplining our attitudes and actions in this area. Let's treat all women with respect. And for all of us, male and female, I suggest that this is a very relevant dimension of evangelism, how we can show our faith in action, proclaiming that God wants to reclaim and redeem our true humanity and not have it abused, twisted, made violent. That might be a little bit of a detour from the Jericho Road, but it's a relevant signpost that needs following. Zach's choice of words raise this necessary issue. So, Zach, Zacchaeus, is powerful. He's a political bully, and his profane speech betrays a deep link between power and sexualized violence. The crowd hates him, and it's likely they shame him. They probably mock him, calling out his name the way Ryder fans have been known to call out, you know the name, Henry. It's a taunt. And it's a sharply pointed one, too, for Zacchaeus. Because his name has an obvious meaning for the Jews. It's the Hebrew word for clean, pure, righteous. 
and it's either a cruel joke or it's a tragic irony because uh, an irony that would be unplanned by his parents when they first named him. Maybe their hopes that went so wrong as they see him go over to the dark side. Who knows what drove Zacchaeus to join the Romans? Who knows how his name pricked his conscience every time he heard it? Was it connected to a life of mockery? Was it because he was so short? Did that lead to insecurity? Fear? A desire for power and revenge? Was he himself ever bullied? I heard a rumor that the songwriter Randy Newman might have been from Jericho, and you might remember his song. You need to know that this song is intended completely ironically, that he's not actually anti-short. But if you are short or if you are tall, you know how height is power. Interesting comment, Bruce, that you made in terms of Japanese culture, height, and that reality. This song is intended to show everything that's wrong with our prejudices. And our world has seen time and time again how easily the blank is filled in. For Hitler, it was Jews, gypsies, gays, got no reason to live. For Confederate Americans, it was blacks. For both America and Canada, we've had policies that kill the Indian to save the child. Of course, we no longer have such murderous and racist biases, do we? But we need to ask, what are our prejudices? Who are the people we don't have time for that we'd prefer to exclude from our lives? That we'd rather they didn't actually exist? So who knows what exclusion, what humiliation drove Zacchaeus to collaborate with the Romans? And who knows what hidden hopes smoldered in his heart as he hid in a large tree on the edge of town, waiting to catch a glimpse of this wonder worker from Galilee as he passes by. This is where Jesus himself walks into the story. He has, in fact, passed through Jericho. He healed the blind man, but otherwise he hasn't stopped. This is his journey to Jerusalem for his final Passover. Jesus is probably quite preoccupied. The journey ahead of him is literally rocky, deserted, dangerous, and uphill. And this fits his mood, his resolve. For he is going to Jerusalem to die. So Jesus walks on through Jerusalem. The crowds are all around him, but he doesn't stop. Not until he's well out of town, the only place where you'd find a huge sycamore tree. And he looks up. He sees the man in the tree, probably heard some people mocking him, mocking that name, Zacchaeus. And Jesus decides to do one more thing before he heads on that final leg of his journey. He looks up and calls out to the oppressor. The crowd hushes and waits to see how Jesus will rebuke him, give him a tongue lashing like the prophets of old, will call him to account for cheating his fellow Jews, but Jesus does the unthinkable. He calls out to the oppressor and invites himself over for supper. This is outrageous. How dare Jesus fellowship with the oppressor? How dare he love the unlovable? This is scandalous love. This is scandalous love. 
Jesus doesn't let any of the public outrage, the grumbling, cloud his vision. He's willing to allow that everyone, even this bully, has some prior story that drove him to his sin. That everyone, even Zacchaeus, is a lost sheep. Jesus was willing to dare that Zacchaeus could be transformed into the true meaning of his name, a person of moral purity. Jesus saw what we often miss, that oppressors, bullies, people in power, manipulative bosses, suck-ups, whatever you want to call them, that they want, that they are, first and foremost, people who need God, who need God to rehumanize them, that they need God as much as their victims do. And in this instance, Zach responded joyfully, freely, positively. Now there's a mystery here. It doesn't always happen this way. It doesn't. Just like some illnesses don't get healed. But Jesus embraces every sinner. Jesus has called Zach, and in response, Zach has opened himself up to Jesus' call. There's a big banquet, and Zacchaeus makes an impromptu speech. I'm giving half my goods to the poor, and if I've screwed anyone over, I'll pay them back four times as much. The overflow of his newfound joy merges with true obedience to, to their common Jewish law. The final signpost. Jesus responds by saying, Today salvation has come to this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. Salvation, this large and spacious word, it's not narrow, it's not easily nailed down. What has happened that brings Jesus to declare the arrival of salvation to this house of Zacchaeus? Let me conclude with a few thoughts for application. First, Jesus is reuniting and reconciling the family of the chosen people. Zach, as much as any other Jew, is a son of Abraham, and he is now a true son because he is responding in faith to God's call, just as Father Abraham did. Secondly, Jesus treats Zacchaeus as a person, not an idea. He's not the enemy. He's not the oppressor. He's not the object of some ideological scorn. He's a fellow human being. And so Jesus begins the work of evangelism by restoring his personhood, by rehumanizing him. And there are plenty of scoundrels in our own cities and neighborhoods today whom Jesus would greet the same way. Would we? Do we? Jesus goes a step further and gives Zacchaeus the dignity of being a host. In other words, he preserves as much as possible Zacchaeus' free will and initiative. He raises Zacchaeus' social status at his own expense. God's love does not impose. It does not force itself on people. God takes the role of guest, standing at Zach's door and at, Nar and at ours, knocking gently and asking to come in. Only if we invite him does he come in to join the feast. Fourth, Zacchaeus creates a space for um, yeah, creates a, Jesus creates a space for Zacchaeus to start over with those he actually bullied. He invites a true repentance that leads to true life change. We don't hear the magic words, Zacchaeus accepted Jesus into his heart. But we do hear that Zacchaeus accepted Jesus into his home 
And we hear that his heart language has been transformed. Silver and gold were the gods he formerly worshipped. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But these gods have no more power over him. Jesus is Lord now in this home. Zacchaeus learns the joy of generosity, and so do the crowds. They will benefit in very practical ways from Zach's open heart and his open wallet. It may be that today you find yourself as one of the lost. All you need to know is that Jesus is here and he is calling your name. He wants to visit you. That's all. See what happens if you let him come over to visit. There's nothing to fear and everything to gain. It may be that today you've got someone like Zacchaeus close to you. Someone who is powerful, self-reliant, set in their ways, far from God. It might be in your family, it might be in your workplace, wherever. Be assured, God has not forgotten their name. And even the most hardened person can respond and be transformed when that voice of love and acceptance calls their name. Finally, it may be that you are sensing the spirit of Jesus nudging you to love the unlovable, the proud, the scoundrel, the bully. And it may be that you realize that this kind of love is costly. The crowds may grumble. No worries. This is the way of Christ. He led the way in that rocky passage that took him all the way to Calvary. And he shows us that this journey, the end of this journey, is the truest and the most alive kind of life that there is. Jesus walked a hard and surprising journey through Jericho. Where, dear brothers and sisters, is he leading you?